0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 65 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. In Jesus' mind, the way to identify his disciples is not by asking what they believe, but by examining their lives. A life that does not evidence what Jesus described as fruit invites certain consequences. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but. As a professional Christian, uh, I'm interested in what people believe, Uh, people I know, people I don't know, strangers, celebrities, artists, noteworthy figures. I'm interested in what people believe. Everyone believes something. Sometimes I get curious about what that might be. Again, being a disciple of Jesus, I'm encouraged, uh, heartened even, when I discover that said belief system of another person turns out to be the way of Jesus. I like hearing that. And you can judge that all you want. Oh, this man needs people to think like him. How sad. But thing is, everyone, and I do mean everyone, has some important aspects of their worldview that they genuinely believe other people should share. Everyone, regardless of what they believe. I make no bones about this. I believe people should follow Jesus. I believe he's the only guy with the truth. If I didn't, I would be in the wrong line of work. So, like I said... I'm heartened to find out that people follow Jesus. Problem is, how can you tell? Do you go off of what people say? That's one way to do it. Uh, recently, my wife Abby and I were in a relatively, relatively good-natured debate about a celebrity that she admires, me decidedly less so, and that's all fine. But thing is, the nature of this debate was that this celebrity claims to be, and I quote, a Christian. It could be, I suppose, but the thing is, through the admittedly narrow lens that we have to view this public personality, there are many things that are blatantly contrary to the teachings of Jesus. Now, of course, Abby and I have no access to this person's real personality. We have the, the veneer, what, what their closest friends actually make of them and what they actually think and all that. We don't, we don't know, but we have some of it. Some people argue Only God knows a person's heart. And that's true. Only God knows, you know, a person's heart in the most exhaustive, intimate sense, anyway. But the thing is, Jesus never taught that the way one could be recognized as a true disciple of his was by what only God knows about their hearts. He actually taught that it would be, to some extent, pretty obvious. And that people, not just God, would be able to recognize it. And he also taught that in the absence of those recognizable qualities, there would be consequences. It's an ominous setup, I know. So with that, open your Bibles to a book called Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Woo for Jeremiah? Really? And a, Oh yeah, dang. You guys like that thing? Jeremiah chapter 8? Okay, you guys like the bummer books? Cool. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8. Feel free to consult the table of contents. It's a big, a big book, the Bible. Uh, if you wooed for it, then you obviously know exactly where it is. Now, if, uh, let me set the stage for what we're about to read. Jeremiah, if you didn't know, is an Israelite priest, and he's a prophet who was called by God to warn the people of Israel of the impending consequences of their ongoing sin. Israel had, at this point in the story, taken up all kinds of things that God's not too fond of. They were worshiping pagan gods. They were practicing rampant injustice and child sacrifice. They were not caring for the poor or the oppressed. And Jeremiah spoke for God in warning Israel of where their evil would eventually take them. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 11. God says to Israel's leaders, "...they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious." Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says Yahweh. I will take away their harvest, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken. From them. And this actually came to pass. Jeremiah lived to see the Empire of Babylon besiege and destroy Jerusalem and take God's people into exile. But Jeremiah's words didn't end there. They continued to reverberate through the centuries where they would come to pass once again in a new way, which brings us to the Gospel of Matthew. So now turn to the right in your Bibles, all the way to the first book of the New Testament. We are, at this point, several years into an ongoing study of one ancient biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this controversial figure that we call Jesus is getting into all kinds of trouble at this point in the story. He's just entered Jerusalem, the city where he's told his disciples he will suffer and die, and he's deliberately started a fight with the religious leaders there. So let's find out what happens next. You guys okay? You ready to do some work? Great, thank you. Let's read Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. I'll uh, pause. <laughs> I love the subtleties like this one, because they have massive theological implications. Now, if you remember last week, here's a flashback if you weren't here. Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He boldly announced his kingship. He was prepared finally for the first time in Matthew's gospel to be recognized publicly as Israel's Messiah. And more than that, kids start to sing praises to Jesus in the temple and the religious leaders are furious about it. And Jesus said, hey, listen, it makes sense. Psalm 8 says that kids will sing praises to Yahweh, so here they go. Jesus is equating himself with the creator God. But now in the very next story, Jesus is on a walk, back to the city, and he's hungry. He's a man. He's human, like you and me. He's knowable. He's relatable. He's hungry. Keep reading. Verse 19. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, to the tree, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. So, so that's weird, right? <laughs> Jesus just reverse et a tree. Here's for reference, you remember? Remember this scene? It's a very powerful scene Or Aaron's nodding kind of reluctantly, like, see? Just play this backwards in your mind. That's what Jesus did to the tree and probably went back to reading this magazine just like that. <laughs> now, the story's bizarre for a few reasons. The first being that this is the only punitive miracle recorded in the Gospels. It's a punishment. It's not a healing. And it seems particularly harsh Because it wasn't fig season. Uh, Jesus lived there. He knew this full well. His disciples knew this. So it seems strange uh, punishing a plant at all, let alone when it's not time for that plant to have fruit. Um, But there's actually a profound dimension of Jesus' personality on display in this strange uh, scene, and that's that Jesus loves symbolism. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, He's grown up steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and in a very Hebrew understanding of God. Jeremiah 8, uh, the the scripture that we began the evening with, was something that Jesus knew really well. That language that we read just moments ago, there will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither, that would be something that Jesus knew that he grew up reading and learning. And there are other passages like it. Look at this from Hosea. Really? For Hosea? Or or I'll just read it to you guys. Maybe I didn't put it up there. If it comes up there, you'll, you'll follow along. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Here's another from Micah 7. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains." The fruit of the fig tree has consistently been a symbol of Israel's faithfulness or faithlessness, and it runs throughout the Hebrew Scriptures because God loves symbolism. In the Old Testament, God commands symbolic performance art. He commands symbolic interior design for the tabernacle where he would dwell. When God appears to Israel, he does so using all kinds of symbolic imagery of chariots and animals and storm formations. And the symbolism of God isn't always pretty or palatable. Israel's history is marked by stoic and somber symbolic practices like animal sacrifice and ritual cleansing. Jesus himself will go on to command the symbolic practice of communion, something that we do every Sunday together, in which ordinary bread and wine symbolize the body, the flesh, and the blood of Jesus so that we deliberately remember his violent execution, Now remember in the story that preceded this one, Jesus enters Jerusalem in grand fashion. He announces himself as Messiah and King. But when he enters the temple, he's frustrated and he declares it corrupt. So scholars argue that the cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic punitive gesture performed before the disciples to demonstrate Jesus' frustration with the fruitlessness of Israel. So Jesus approaches this fruitless plant, that he knows will be fruitless, and he pronounces judgment on it for its fruitlessness. This, we think, is meant to demonstrate both the powerful authority of Jesus and the seriousness of judgment. But then, hilariously, his disciples are more impressed with the fact that Jesus touched a tree and made it wither up than any kind of symbolism that he's injected into the deed. In verse 20, we read, when the disciples saw that, they were amazed. How did the tree wither so quickly, they asked? So, the miracle is symbolic. It's not practical at all. But wouldn't you be impressed if you saw someone reverse ET, a a fig tree? I would. I would be fascinated. So, Jesus responds to their awe and, and wonder by reminding them of an important lesson he'd been teaching repeatedly throughout his life. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. So here... Jesus is speaking to the miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit in and through him and eventually his followers. He's speaking less to the symbolism of the specific act because that they've totally missed that. It's gone over their heads. And he's speaking more to the faith that powered the miracle itself. So it's less of a you too can curse plants kind of lesson and more of a you too can also do incredible things kind of lesson. Now you and I tend to assume, perhaps understandably, that Jesus does things that we can't do in terms of miracles, But Jesus not only teaches the opposite, he's consistently frustrated by the way that this misunderstanding keeps his followers from the true power of God. The condition for this miracle-working power, as usual, is not that you have to be Jesus, it is that you have faith, and in particular, faith without doubt, which can be confusing, because all disciples of Jesus experience doubt from time to time. I would argue that doubt can be a healthy thing. But in context, Jesus' idea of faith without doubt is not that you have no questions and no like shortcomings in your faith and belief and all that kind of stuff. The idea is that you have a willingness to operate with the baseline belief that God is real and that he wants to do amazing things in and through you. Uh, scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, puts it this way. He says, Doubt, in Jesus' teaching, is the decision to live as if God does not exist. And for disciples of Jesus, this decision is disloyal. So Jesus' teaching here is a uh, hyperbolic principle. It's not a metaphysical promise, meaning we all know that even with great faith, there are other wills at work in the world. Some prayers are not answered regardless of your faith. So Jesus is not promising an ironclad formula to have any and every prayer answered. He's reminding his disciples that faith is an active channel through which the Spirit of God can do truly incredible things. But remember, this is, even though they've missed it, so we had to teach a side lesson for a second, this is a symbolic act set within a particular movement of the story for a reason. So, let's keep reading. Verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Now remember, The previous evening in the story, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem in kingly fashion. People are shouting, Hosanna, praise the king, all kinds of stuff. He goes into the temple court, same place in the story. He yells at people. He flips tables over, and then he invites all kinds of rabble into the temple courts, blind people, paralyzed people, he starts healing them. It was such a huge deal that Matthew said that it was like Jerusalem quaked, like there was an earthquake. He said some really incendiary stuff. He likened himself to the creator God, and then he just walked out of there. And then the next morning he comes back. He just waltzes right back in like nothing happened into the temple courts and he starts teaching people. So of course, the chief priests make a beeline for this guy. His wanted poster is virtually on their wall. The audacity of this guy, and he just waltzes right back in. And on top of that, Jesus isn't an ordained rabbi. He grew up as a peasant stonemason, if you know the story. So it makes all kinds of sense that the religious leaders want Jesus to explain What the heck is up? Who gave you the authority to say stuff like this? But it's also a trick, and it's a pretty decent trick at that. Jesus has made all kinds of over-the-top gestures to demonstrate that he is Israel's long-awaited king, the Messiah, the anointed one. He has not denied it when other people have said that that was the case, but Jesus himself hasn't said so in an explicit public fashion yet. So the chief priests just ask him point blank, If he says he is the coming king in public, they can bring a charge against him to the Roman governors and have him executed for sedition. It's actually pretty easy. If he says he isn't the coming king, all these people who have been healed, who laid down their cloaks as he entered the city on a donkey, their hopes will be dashed and his following will be scattered. Pretty, pretty clever, (laughs) chief priest. So what will Jesus say in his defense? Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And here's this question, verse 25. John's baptism, meaning John the baptizer, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Jesus is very smart. This is not a stall tactic. The major revival movement in Israel prior to Jesus was John the Baptist. Any religious leader worth their salt would know about John the Baptist. They would have a strong conviction on the matter one way or the other, whether God was actually at work through John or whether or not it was a sham. So keep reading in verse 25. They, the chief priests, they get together, they discuss it amongst themselves, and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... We're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they get back together, and they answer Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So it's hilarious. The chief priests lay a trap for Jesus, and it's actually a pretty good one, in which either answer he gives would implicate him, and he responds immediately with a question that, however answered, will discredit the very one seeking to discredit him. He is fantastically intelligent. Jesus is prepared to be recognized by the people. We've already seen that. He's not afraid of what will happen. Clearly, he flips over tables and yells at people in the temple. He rides in as a king. He causes all kinds of trouble. He's not avoiding what's coming. He's not trying to put it off. But he also refuses to play into their trap. He knows that they're cowards. He knows that there's posers and he won't accommodate them. So John the Baptist was largely held to be a prophet of God by the people something that the chief priests don't appreciate because it undermines their own authority. John didn't belong to any of the parties of the religious leaders. He had critical things to say about them. He was just some nut out in the desert eating grasshoppers and stuff. But if they're honest about what they think, he's just some nut, he wasn't a part of our club, the crowds will turn on them. The crowds that they want to turn on Jesus will now no longer be on their side so the whole thing's undone. Now if they pander to the crowds and say, oh yeah, John was from God for sure, they've basically just... Given Jesus the authority that they've called into question, as John very publicly acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. So when Jesus says, Neither will I tell you, he is reasserting his authority over theirs. I don't have to tell you anything. It's great. That, my friends, is what you call checkmate. But pause for a second because it's not called checkmate at all. I have a note. I didn't even erase it. Like uh, the elders of this church and our deacons read these teachings and they make notes on them to make sure that I'm not a heretic. And um, there's a note on this from our elder Scott Barguerre. Is he up here this evening? Or is it Scott right here? He's like, actually, it's not checkmate. It's a, what is it? It's a forcing move. And then there was this long note about chess. I'll be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. I was like, this man just left me. There's no theology in this whatsoever. So so that, my friends, is what you call a forcing move, apparently in chess. But no one knows what that means. Now you do. So, Jesus isn't done. Now, Jesus is going to begin a trilogy of stories that scholars sometimes call the people of God parables. How else do you continue a teaching like this but suddenly start telling fictional anecdotes? Because each story is meant to highlight the dichotomy between who are and who are not the people of God, which sounds pretty intense, so some scholars also call them the judgment parables. Here comes the deep water, here we go. Look down at verse 28. "'What do you think?' Jesus says. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father's wanted, father wanted? The first, the chief priests answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, It's a metaphor, obviously. It's a pretty thinly veiled one, but there are two dimensions to the metaphor. The first is kind of firmly situated in the ancient context. In Jesus' parable, the first son represents sinful Israel, you know, the tax collectors and prostitutes. Upon the message of John the Baptist, they're initially reluctant, but then they end up believing the truth and they accept the kingdom of God. The other son, the other crowd, are the chief priests and the religious leaders. They claim to believe the truth. They say yes right away, but in practice, they never actually enter the kingdom. They said the right things, but weren't prepared to live for the kingdom because they won't see the kingdom for what it is. Now, in this sense, the parable is caustic and accusatory, intense stuff for the chief priests. But remember, Jesus is also surrounded by people, and his disciples are there. A crowd would have been watching, and he's so brilliant. So the teaching is for anyone hearing it as well. In the mind of Jesus, obedience is is the true measure of discipleship, not right thinking. Intellectual belief to Jesus is empty when it does not propel lifestyle. So certainly the chief priests have a more educated, robust theology than crooks and hookers but that isn't stopping the crooks and hookers from entering the kingdom of God before them. And that would have really stung because tax collectors and prostitutes represented the absolute dregs of society in the mind of just about everyone in the first century, but especially the religious leaders. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not saying that belief is unimportant, that having a flimsy, uninformed theology, that's all fine and dandy no matter what. He's saying that, to be sure, belief comes first, Theology matters, but then it must propel the believer into action, into a different way of living, into obedience. And he's not done. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. (laughs) There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, he dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So, in context, in the Bible story, God always intended to rule over creation collaboratively with human beings. Humans, who bear God's image, are entrusted by God to do something with the world. They're held responsible for it. But here, it's more than just humanity in general. It's the unique appointment of God's people to fulfill their divine appointment. God told Abraham in the story, I will bless you, and through your descendants, all people will be blessed. In other words, there's work to do so the story goes on in verse 34 when the harvest time approached he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit the tenants seized his servants they beat one killed another and stoned a third then he sent other servants to them more than the first time and the tenants treated them the same way last of all he sent his son to them they will respect my son he said now notice Jesus understands himself to be God's final word, as it were. Last of all, he sent his son, Jesus says. Jesus is not just another prophet in Israel's story, not just another servant. He is the unique, final, and greatest gesture of God. Jesus is God's ultimate plan to save humanity. But look at what happens in verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In Jesus' parable, the landowner represents God. Maybe that's obvious. Now, notice how patient and persistent Jesus believes the Father to be. And this should come as little surprise to the chief priest. Jesus is essentially retelling Israel's story. The same exact idea is expressed just as succinctly in 2 Chronicles. When we read this in chapter 36, Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. So having framed a familiar story for the chief priest, Jesus asks them a question in verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Once again, Jesus leads the chief priest with his questions and kind of puts them on the spot in front of everyone. And they have little choice but to answer this way in verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. The chief priests are made to pronounce their own sentence. And we think Matthew intends this as both a a cruel irony and as an ominous foreshadow of what is to come. So it's easy to read this parable eschatologically, meaning uh, having to do with the end times, as it were. And there's a note of that in there for sure. But that's not the only way that judgment works. Remember, In Israel's story at this point, God's people have already confronted horrifying judgment when after God pleaded with Israel to repent, remember Jeremiah, she would not, and they were invaded by Babylon and sent into exile. Israel understood this to be God's judgment on sin. But years after this conversation between Jesus and the chief priests and many years before the final judgment the chief priest would be judged for murdering the son of the vineyard owner, so to speak. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was besieged by the soon-to-be Roman Emperor Titus, and Jerusalem, along with the temple itself, was destroyed. The Jewish people were slaughtered in the process. After the fact, early Christian readers would hear the Jesus story and think of when the owner of the vineyard comes to refer to that event That was bringing a wretched end to the temple establishment. But the chief priests were right. The purpose of God did go out beyond the temple establishment, the places of power, and even beyond the Jewish people, becoming a grassroots movement of both Jews and Gentiles. God did rent the vineyard to other tenants. And Jesus has more to say. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, don't miss the uh, sarcasm here. Jesus is asking the chief priests, Bible experts, if they've ever actually read the Bible. And the dig likely stung doubly as the text Jesus quotes is Psalm 118, in which the stone that the builders rejected is, in fact, Israel. Who, in context, was rejected itself by powerful enemies, Babylon, taken into exile, but God promised to restore in the end. But Jesus intends to use the text differently here. Watch how. Verse 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed." So in Jesus' reading, the stone is now him. He is the new Israel, and he will succeed in Israel's appointment as they have consistently failed. And his kingdom is unstoppable. Anyone who comes against it will be, at least figuratively speaking, dashed to pieces as if against a giant rock. Now, Some scholars think that these are some of the most important lines in Matthew's entire gospel because, get this, Jesus is looking the chief priests dead in their eyes, the religious leaders of God's covenant people, and he says, look, you blew it, and you are out. Racial tension in the first century was a powder keg. Jewish people commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. The Gentile people, the Romans, were the oppressors of the Jewish people. Gentiles couldn't even go beyond the outer courts of the temple, super segregated and all that. And this trouble, this troublemaking rabbi who won't behave who won't keep quiet, is telling the religious leaders of Israel, not only is God's project going out beyond the boundaries of the Jewish people, you won't be included at all. Good grief. So naturally, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. What are they supposed to do? Obviously, we have to get rid of this dude, but the crowds of people are hosannahing him all into the city and stuff and laying palm branches on the ground, singing worship songs to him in the temple and all that. It is a pickle to say the least. Now, here's the thing. I'm done with uh, the text right now, exegeting it anyway. And you might have guessed that the takeaway isn't exactly a breezy one. Matthew certainly intends to document historical events and conversations in these stories. He certainly means to say something specific about Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders, his condemnation of the temple establishment, the eventual outspreading of the kingdom of God beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles as well. Um, Jesus has something to say about the religious uh, religious leaders of Israel being fruitless, barren trees, withering. But remember this, these stories were recorded for the Jesus movement. They were intended to be read and reread and passed on. Intended, intended, even in a certain sense, for you and I. Now it would be easy, or at least efficient, to come at this from a kind of fire and brimstone angle, and you know, yell at everyone, myself at the top of the list, to get our acts together. At least we fall helpless before the horrible judgment of God. Amen, let's pray, you know, that's the end of the night. But this story exists within a larger canvas of a bigger story, and when you take a step back and then kind of another step back, something strange and haunting begins to come into focus. So look at it this way. The bulk of Jeremiah's book, where we began this evening, certainly Jeremiah's prophetic work, is a scathing indictment of Israel's sin. It's a horrifying warning of impending judgment. But then in the story, when sin compounds and judgment finally erupts, it's not a bolt of lightning from heaven. It's not like a portal to hell that opens in the ground. It's consequences. The nation of Babylon comes in, and uh, in many ways, it becomes more terrifying than a bolt of lightning from heaven. Sin has consequences in the here and now, as well as in the age to come. We now know that what the chief priests did not know then, and what Jesus spoke to prophetically on more than one occasion, that violence would erupt in Jerusalem once again, and the temple, the fruitless fig tree as it were, would be destroyed. We also know from reading the entire story that Jesus was not satisfied or vindicated by these things, but that he was grieved by them. When Luke records a story that will eventually happen in Matthew 23, when we get there. Jesus grieves over Israel's sin. Luke records that he weeps over Jerusalem. And when these same religious leaders do follow through on their plot to kill Jesus, the response we find from Jesus is not like fiery condemnation. I will be avenged, you know, on the cross or something like that. We read that Jesus prays for their forgiveness. That to say, the Bible's consistent warning from Genesis to Revelation is that sin has consequences, the wages of sin is death in the language of the scriptures, and destruction, and that this breaks the heart of God. Unless we excuse ourselves from this conversation, it's not just about like a life of flagrant evil that we're talking about, it's the life of a withered tree, fruitless, inert, God isn't standing by, you know, idling at kind of like baseline rage all the time, waiting to strike you for your wrongdoing or your laziness, whichever thing. He is pleading for you to turn away from the road that leads to death of its own volition, the natural consequences of sin. That could be something like the emptiness of the temple, you know, a kind of dutiful social religion that carries you into church or community or, or both most weeks and fills your mouth with the right kind of buzzword to keep the conversation going. But the fruit is actually withered, a dry husk of a tree. This is certainly not what Jesus had in mind when he talked about, I have come to bring life and life to the fullest. Fruitfulness for you Probably won't mean, you know, like founding a nonprofit or moving to Calcutta or something like that, but it will mean learning faithfulness and self denial and learning intimacy with God's Spirit. It might mean finally moving beyond trauma from your past or inertia or fear. It might mean maturing. It will certainly mean maturing. It will mean getting help and admitting that you needed and refusing to operate in the same modes of lifelessness or fruitlessness. Any of you guys that have followed Jesus for a spell know that there are seasons of kind of languishing in the fog where there feels like there's no real change and no real growth and no real intimacy. And most of the time in those seasons, you recognize at least a bit what's missing But you can't seem to bring yourself to put one foot in front of the other, so you coast in the achievable bare minimum, a tree without fruit. And God's heart for you is not just the Father's open arms, pleading, wanting to show you Jesus' promise of life to the fullest. God's heart is also warning, this road leads to death. This is why we believe the practices are so important. I was just having a conversation with someone this weekend about a kind of tension in which our church operates. Our church, if you didn't know, is oriented around this idea of not only talking and singing about Jesus, but actually attempting to learn his teachings and put them into practice in a pragmatic way. So we spent years taking on one spiritual discipline at a time, one principle of emotional health at a time fasting and then dealing with your past and prayer and then discovering your identity and calling and developing a rule of life and so on. And the idea is not and has never been to put us through motions, that's the tension. Not, the idea has never been to check obligatory spiritual duties off of a Christian to-do list. I prayed, I learned how to do it, and now I'm more Christian. But the funny thing is that even if you step into the practices with misplaced or superficial motivations, when one actually does the practices of Jesus, something tends to happen. So look at it this way. Let's say that someone is physically unhealthy or out of shape and they badly want to be a part of fitness culture, which is the thing. They want to post before and after pictures on Instagram. They want cool running shoes. They want to be able to say they hit the gym. You know, they want to go on a marathon or something like that. So imagine that said person kind of does some stuff, but haphazardly, uncommitted, kind of phoned in. They jog sometimes. They don't really change their diet at all. They visit a gym irregularly. They don't really organize their rhythms or routines or anything like that. And then months later, they throw their hands up in defeat. This does nothing. What a waste. But imagine that same person still compelled entirely by vanity, but actually starts working out running, realizes, oh, maybe this would work better if I also chose to eat healthy, so they do that. It doesn't really matter what the initial motivation was. If they actually do it, inevitably, they will experience some level of change. So please hear me when I say this. You will not experience the life of Jesus if you do not adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That is what puts fruit on the fig tree. Of course we don't mean that if you read your bible 10 minutes a day and say a prayer you'll suddenly become a shining example of Christ likeness if you check those things off the box. What we mean is that Christ likeness is not natural. But when you steep yourself in the scriptures again and again over time as Jesus did, when you learn sure awkward and fumbling but when you learn to pray to bring your heart and mind to an awareness of God's presence, not just in the quiet, but throughout the chaos of your day, like Jesus did. When you make space regularly to hear from God's spirit, like Jesus did. When you make time to be alone in silence before God, like Jesus did. When you learn to put your phone away, when you train yourself to live in community with other men and women who are on the same journey, holding one another accountable, open to input and correction, When you discipline yourself to structure the rhythms of your life, to make these things happen, rather than waiting for them to kind of organically fall into your life, all of that is like watering a tree slowly over time, enriching its soil, situating it in healthy sunlight, and slowly over time, usually without you noticing right away, the tree grows and unfolds lush, healthy greens and viable fruit. This is why we return to this teaching from Jesus over and over and over again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Listen to this language. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in me, in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Notice the way Jesus' words are so consistent. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. In his magnum opus, his manifesto on life in the kingdom of God, Jesus said something very similar. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise... Every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus has been saying the same thing all along, which puts us in a really complicated tension. In his commentary on Matthew, scholar Scott McKnight writes this, Sensitive theologians are sometimes nervous about the way Jesus talks, (laughs) and sometimes we need to exercise a special caution, but we need to trust Jesus said what he wanted. No one is saved by works, of course, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus. You can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who has spent much time with the judgment text in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment of works. Jesus always presents this beautiful, irresistible portrait of the kingdom. He says all kinds of amazing, romanticized things. Like, I have come, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give them life and life to the fullest. Some scholars uh, translate that line, the life that is truly life. And he simultaneously presents a stark, hardcore portrait of authentic discipleship that is designed to convict the listener as they learn. It's a teaching tool, and it's a clever one at that. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are listening to your teacher and your master, and he's warning you that authentic discipleship will be evident by examining one's life. Fruitless trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So it's like, make sure you examine the life of the people around you. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And you're nodding and thinking, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I got it. That makes sense. Wait, does my life evidence my discipleship? And there I imagine Jesus gives, you know, the sly wink and he says, exactly the right question, my student. May he draw us further in and may we walk the imperfect, stumbling road of discipleship that even in our brokenness and imperfections, we would slowly over time, like a well-cultivated tree, bear much fruit and remain in him. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.